Hello and welcome to this edition of the Colcast, where we celebrate innovators of law and technology. I'm your host, Robert Hilson of Logical, and I am joined today by Kenneth Grady, the lean law evangelist for Farth Shaw and former chief executive officer of Farth Lean Consulting. Uh, Ken is a recognized thought leader who frequently speaks on legal industry issues and trends, including innovation, leadership, efficiency, and change management. Uh, some of those things we're going to talk about today. Uh, his articles and posts have been featured in many online and print media publications, uh, and he is the editor of the excellent blog, sightlines.com, which is S-E-Y-T lines.com. Uh, Ken, thanks a lot for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Robert. It's good to be here. So uh, tell me, what is a lean law evangelist? Like when you uh, go to a party, how do you describe what you do for a living? Well, you know, the the evangelism term actually we have to give due credit uh, or credit where it's due. Guy Kawasaki was the first, I think, corporate evangelist, and he worked for Apple many years ago, and so he's sort of defined this niche category of evangelism. And basically, um, uh, what I do today is talk with lawyers uh, around the world, corporations, uh, private practice, where wherever they may be and uh, try and convince them that there is a better, more efficient, higher quality, uh, leaner way to practice law than what we traditionally have done, and that it is to our advantage uh, to, take, to make use of the tools of lean and to improve how we deliver legal services uh, because um, of several things. One, our clients demand it, so that's a good reason. Uh, the second, in the legal industry in general, we are struggling with a huge demand for legal services, overwhelming demand for legal services, if you look in society in general, and the legal profession has not been able to meet that demand. So we talk about ways that uh, we can meet the demand given the resources that are out there. And third is probably uh, one of the, you know, the themes of our generation, which is uh, better use of resources. Um, we have a tremendous uh, amount of resources invested in educating lawyers, uh, training lawyers, and they're there. They're able to do a lot of work, and today we, we uh, abuse the lawyers by having them do things that um, they don't need to do. And so if we could take that work they don't need to do, throw it out the window, and focus them on the work that does need to be done, we would all be better off. Clients would be better off. Uh, the lawyers would have more enjoyable careers, et cetera. So it's it's sort of a broad portfolio of trying to think about how we can rethink how we deliver legal services. Right. So, I mean, there, there's a, a lot to unpack there. One of the things that kind of struck me, though, is this kind of supply and, and demand uh, issue that you brought up. And I, I guess, you know, when we traditionally think about legal services, we think that there's kind of an oversupply, right? There are too many lawyers, but you're saying that that's not the case at all and that we're not able to fulfill the demand that's out there. Yeah, we have a real mismatch. I mean, we have uh, in the U.S. probably around 1.2 million lawyers globally. We have about 2 million lawyers. But if you look across the demand for legal services, and this is you know, beyond just the corporate world where I tend to work more often and some of us tend to exist a bit more. If you look for the demand for legal services, 80% um, of the legal needs of low-income individuals are not being met. The majority of legal needs of middle-income individuals are not being met. Even if you go to the world of corporations, you find that corporations 
have a lot of demand for legal services with um, compliance, with regulation, with globalization. There's a tremendous number of issues to be addressed. And it's not that they don't want to address them, it's that the cost of getting the services to address those legal issues has risen to a level where all across the spectrum uh, people and corporations are having to pick and choose. So there's a lot of work out there. This is the more part of the more for less equation. The amount of work that needs to be done is large and is growing, but we don't have uh, this, this unlimited pool of money to spend on getting the services. On the other side of the equation, we have lawyers who are in private practice, um, who uh, actually are underutilized. We have lawyers who don't have jobs, who clearly are underutilized given their education. And the reason they're not getting as much work is the same thing. It costs a lot of money to hire lawyers to do work given our traditional legal services delivery model. So there's a lot of demand, there's a lot of supply, but we the the problem exists in the middle. We're not able to connect the two because of this cost structure that we've built through the system. So if we can figure out how to simplify the costs, we'll find that clients will be using lawyers much more frequently. The lawyers will be engaged much more frequently. And this is putting aside for the moment the impact of technology. And the result would be sort of happiness all around as, as we'd have a better utilized uh, uh, system in there. And that's, that's been our problem. It's just so expensive right now under our current services delivery model to get those services that we can't get the two parts connected well. Okay, so cost is the big inhibitor here. Tell me about some of the ways that lean thinking and lean practice uh, drives down some of these costs. Okay, so that's, in a way, cost has been thought of as the traditional focus of lean. It's actually much broader than that, but it's, it's a good place to start. Lean goes, goes way back to the early 1900s, and as most people probably know, it was uh, developed as a system at Toyota, mm -hmm. um, because, um, and, and the way it developed at Toyota was out of necessity. Um, coming out of the war, Toyota wanted to build cars. There weren't a lot of resources in terms of money, steel, and other things available. So they had to be very frugal and efficient with everything they had. And that was one of the drivers for figuring out how can we operate an automotive business, but be very frugal, be very cost conscious in doing everything we do. We roll for many decades, and today, Lean is a philosophy. Um, the philosophy is uh, about eliminating waste from the way that we do things. It's a philosophy about uh, when originally one of the names for Lean was going to be respect for humanity because it believes that um, we should use people to their fullest capabilities and not waste their time by having them do things that either don't add value or, or are below their skill level. Um, and it certainly is a core set of methodologies. And, and so in the legal profession, when we talk about lean, what we're saying is our traditional legal services model is a very labor-centric model. It takes people, it asks them to do all sorts of tasks, and it takes a lot of time to do those tasks. I'll call it manually, although they may be typing on a computer, but right. to do those tasks manually. And that labor adds up into a high cost model for delivering the, le the legal services. 
in doing all this, we have a lot of embedded waste in the system. Um, so we're moving things around a lot that uh, through emails or through walking or through photocopying, et cetera, that don't add value to the final product. We're um, doing over-processing. The uh, lawyer, whether inside or outside, may put more work into something than the client actually needs out of it. We hear this referred to sometimes as the Cadillac versus Chevy issue. I just needed a Chevy. You want to deliver me a, a Cadillac. That's not really what I need. So there's over-processing. Um, all of the types of waste that we talk about in Lean are embedded into our system uh, of delivering legal services. So we're taking this traditional approach. We're looking at how we do legal services and saying, can we strip out those things that don't add value, that add, uh, are simply wasteful, and get down to a shorter, more concise, more focused way of delivering those legal services to the client. And by doing that, we're taking out cost that's in the system. Because in a labor-centric model, the more time it takes, the more cost you build into a system. And so by taking time out that we don't need to spend on things, we are reducing the cost, making the service more affordable. So so as you explain this, and that was a, that was a great explanation, especially for people who are not uh, kind of initiated in this, um, you know, it, it's clear, I, I think, how technology can kind of facilitate lean practices, right? But it, it also seems like it can be an impediment because, you know, you can kind of get this mindset that, oh, you know, now we have these these better tools and they're kind of automating everything, um, it, it might kind of lead to this kind of laziness. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't now matter how long it takes me to walk over to the photocopier, right? Do you see that challenge at all? Yes, that challenge exists today, but it's also, it's a challenge that's existed throughout the history of Lean because right. there was always technology of some sort. And so there's an uh, and lazy is a good word for it because it's one that comes up frequently, especially if you talk to people who have been involved in lean for a long time. Sort of the lazy person's way of dealing with something may be to say, well, instead of having the person do it, let's just throw it over onto a machine. The machine will do it, and now I don't have to worry about it as much. But that really is not a lean way of thinking. And um, I'll, I'll try and use some short examples to explain why. So. If I'm doing something in a factory and I throw it onto the machine and now the machine does it, it's absolutely true a person is no longer doing that work. Mm -hmm. But it costs money to build the machine, it costs money to maintain the machine, it costs money to buy the machine, it costs money to have space for the machine, it costs money to replace the machine when the machine dies. So there's a lot of capital that's been built into the machine and if we look at the cost of doing things it may be that the cost of that capital far exceeds what we did with labor before so it, by switching it from person to machine and we could use the same story by switching it from a person to a computer it doesn't mean that we've necessarily made anything lean and it certainly could mean that we've actually added to the cost and an example in today's world is many companies will say, you know, we're drowning in contracts. My gosh, they're coming from every place. Everybody needs a contract, the time demands, etc. Let's get a contract management system. So they go out and immediately buy a very uh, expensive contract management system. And as part of uh, purchasing that, it's, quote, integrated with their current processes. Well, this is the modern version of my machine sitting on the shop floor. We've now spent a lot of money for the machine. 
uh, called the computer. It has to be maintained. The software has to be upgraded. We have to teach people how to use it. Um, so there's a lot of costs associated around it. In the lean world, what we like to do is focus first on uh, where we always go, which is the process. How do we actually get from I need a contract to we have a completed, executed contract? And what are the steps along the way? How can we eliminate anything that doesn't add value so that we get down to just those steps that do add value? And then this is where technology comes in. At that point, we say, are there operations? in this sequence of steps that a person is doing today, but we could have a machine, a simpler machine, a focused machine do, um, and so that operation becomes even more efficient than when the, the uh, person was doing it. So I may include technology, and we usually do. Obviously, Toyota started this. They build cars with machines, so we know that technology is involved. Right. But that technology that I look at is focused, it's um, very skilled at doing the operation that I use it for, and I don't attempt to overbuy something and overuse something that I don't really need. So a technology we might use in my contract scenario is document automation. I could go through and pull up a document and go through and, and on the screen make all sorts of changes, but a document automation tool may be able to do that much more efficiently if properly integrated into the process of creating a contract. And a contract automation tool tends to be a more focused, less costly machine than buying an entire contract management system. So technology absolutely has a place. It gets integrated into lean operations all the time, but it's done as part of a thoughtful um, design of the process and looking at the process rather than the first place we go. Ken, I want to ask you about how you got involved in, in lean and becoming a lean evangelist. Um, you started your career uh, working at a law firm, uh, you moved your way up to partner, and then you were at uh, several organizations at, at in-house positions. How did you make the leap from uh, you know, being a, a corporate GC to uh, this, this role that you have now? I, um, when I moved from in private practice to a corporation, the first company I moved to was about two years into what we call a lean transformation. So it was a large manufacturing company, Fortune 500. Um, it had decided to change from traditional manufacturing style to lean, and that was a board-driven decision. So it was throughout the organization, uh, administrative as well as the operations side. Um, so when I joined, you quickly became um, part of the culture of thinking about doing things in a lean way. After a while, I was given the opportunity to move from the law side to the manufacturing side and run one of their largest facilities. And as soon as I made that move, uh, they sent me off to Japan where I studied with uh, individuals who had been engineers at Toyota and part of the original uh, group that developed these different methodologies and principles that today we call lean. And so I went there, uh, went through some training, went through some working on the shop floor, learning how to implement lean, came back to run my manufacturing facility and spent uh, 
most of my time doing lean implementations, lean work, learning lean as part of running that facility. So I learned it in a very traditional way from the people who created it and in a traditional environment, manufacturing. And then I moved back into law. And once you've been infected with lean, um, you, you start looking at everything and you see uh, the waste out there, which is a very lean practitioner's way of talking. You will see things that are inefficient, you'll see things that don't need to be done. And so you can imagine if you've been trained in that, you've been immersed in it for a long time, and you walk back into the legal profession, um, red lights go off all over <laughs> everything. You know, you're looking at everything going, oh my gosh, how, how can we possibly do it this way? So when I moved back into law 20 some odd years ago, I started um, what I call a stealth project of trying to work lean into how we practice law. Um, I was in-house, and when you're in-house, efficiency matters tremendously because, uh, again, this problem of you have way more work than you have time to do. Mm -hmm. so you're always scrambling, and so it plays very naturally to an in-house practitioner. But that's, that's how I got into lean. I used it during my, my next 20-some-odd years, and uh, at the end, I was using Seifert Shaw to do work on a portfolio of trademarks that the company where I was GC had. And uh, we were doing that in particular because they had gotten into lean. So um, I was spending a lot of time focused on it again. And when I retired from uh, being a general counsel, it gave me the opportunity to work with Seifert on continuing this lean transformation. When you moved back into legal, did it seem like kind of an insurmountable task to bring some of these lean concepts uh, into the law firm setting and into the corporate setting? I wouldn't say it, it felt insurmountable because um, and, and people who have enough of a history in lean will would recognize this. When it was being introduced to manufacturing, it was the same problem. There was a huge resistance to uh, doing things in a lean way if you were in a traditional manufacturing environment. Mm -hmm. and, and you hit you know, all sorts of people telling you it wouldn't work, it would fail, here's all the reasons, and, and having to sort of fight that battle every day. So having been through that in an organization that was very early in its transformation, when I came into back into law, um, the fact that people were not jumping up and down and saying, Yahoo, this is the way to do things, wasn't a surprise. It, it, you always run into that. I think what's been more interesting about doing this over the past 20 some odd years in the legal industry is um, resistance to change is not unusual, but the legal industry does have a number of factors that makes it more resistant to change and has made the introduction of lean more challenging than we've seen in other areas. Hmm. That's a great point. Um, so tell me, you've been at this for you know more than two decades now. What have your major victories been? Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I think I think you you look at victories, uh, or at least I look at victories more in terms of uh, incremental rather than radical change. Right. Um, I don't think there's been radical change yet, or a, you know, a major milestone we've achieved in bringing lean into the legal industry. I've seen, um, in my career, I've seen a number of instances where 
uh, you have the light bulb moment where you're explaining lean, you go through lean events, you teach people how to use it, and they get it. They, you know, they move across the threshold from this is how we've been doing it, we've always done it this way, and we don't see the need to change. You go through a process, now they see a better way to do it, and the bulb goes on and they say, I get it now, I understand we can do these things more efficiently, we can do them in a better way without sacrificing those things that we should retain as part of practicing law and that doing them these way, this way does not strip me of my individuality, of my uh, ability to be creative and, and do a number of things I like as a lawyer. And as you accumulate those over time, those are the ones that you feel good about because this is you know, this is going to be a war one a day at a time and a person at a time. As you convince people and show people how to do things better, you you hopefully have a multiplier effect. There are more people out there and it picks up momentum. And I, we are picking up momentum. I think more people are recognizing this. I think there's a number of things that are coming together to, to hit that famous tipping point. Um, and so it feels, you know, that feels good. You feel like you have, uh, you've been on the right path. You mentioned the tipping point. Like, what are the barriers to to reaching that tipping point? Like, what are um, kind of the most stubborn inefficiencies that you uh, still see subsist up there? Yeah, I'd say it's not so much the inefficiency that's the barrier. We have a structural Hmm. um, arrangement in the industry that favors inefficiency. and so it's, it's not an inefficiency per se as it is we have structured the industry to, to thrive on a model where, excuse me, a lot of people benefit from having more uh, done in a system. So we all know that the billable hour is out there. We all know that that favors putting in more effort to things. We need a model, and we have models, but we need to embrace models that say, instead of compensating based on effort, instead of valuing things based on effort, we need to value them based on uh, other factors, what, what they bring to the client, what value they deliver to the client. And if you can break the connection between time equaling money, then that's a major uh, impediment, certainly a major hurdle to doing things lean. If I'm paid by the hour, why the heck would I ever want to spend fewer hours on something? Right. So that's, that's something that exists in the outside world. On the inside world, um, strangely enough and not talked about a lot, we have a similar type of problem. Uh, within corporate law departments, uh, you know, if you become more efficient, uh, and, and people don't recognize that this problem has existed in manufacturing and other areas, but as you become more efficient, people will start to realize, well, wait, if we can do things more efficiently, that means instead of needing three people, maybe we only need two, or we only need one person to do this, so we don't need as many people. Um, the solution to that in manufacturing has been um, to recognize that if you become more efficient, your costs go down, you are going to sell more product, you're going to deliver more to your customers, and therefore you will actually need more people because your business expands. So instead of using three people to do what one person can do, we now use one person to do it, but we have three times the business, so Mm. hence we, we need more people. So there's pressure within law departments that says, you know, don't necessarily, um, 
get everything lean because you may need fewer lawyers. A second problem that we face is compensation systems. Um, compensation systems don't often reward, especially for lawyers, becoming more efficient using less money to accomplish things or using less time or less resources. So the incentives aren't there to say, make us very efficient. And if the incentives aren't there, it's hard to convince people to change what they're doing. Um, a third one that exists is uh, the traditional way of doing things. Lawyers are very, they're trained from day one, as you mentioned. We're trained to not change things. And so we're trying to introduce this world of change to a group of people who, from the day they set foot in the law school, have been tra trained on don't change. Right. And that's, that's a change management issue. That's the personality of the lawyers and what they've been trained in. So the, the challenge we've faced in introducing lean into the legal community has not been the application of lean tools to legal work. It's been the structural um, arrangement of the industry and the personalities of lawyers uh, within the industry and trying to break through those. And you know, sometimes the change in the personalities is a slow thing that happens over time uh, as new people enter the profession and people who've been in the profession uh, leave. So you, you have some of that happening. The structural part has been the real impediment in big law and big corporations to making this type of change. It's a, you know, you're trying to change an industry-wide valuation model, and that's difficult. Um, Ken, I have uh, a thousand more questions to ask you, but I, I know you got to get out of here. Um, so let's just end with this. Um, tell us about the things that uh, you're focusing on right now, and uh, maybe some of the things that keep you up at night. Um, well, the, the thing that keeps me up at night is, uh, is easy to address. Uh, lawyers right now, I think, are not focusing on the impact that changes in demography, economics, technology, societal needs, etc., are having on the profession. There's a, a strong urge to hunker down and simply say we can weather the storm, um, I will make it through to retirement, somehow this will all work out and I don't need to embrace change and so I'm busy and I'll just sort of keep my head down and focus on what I'm doing day to day. And the, the danger in that, um, apart from the danger to the individual finding that they, they don't have a job because uh, of these changes, is a broader one for the profession and I think a broader one for society. The broader one is technology is moving forward uh, as it will. And if lawyers do not embrace technology, embrace change, embrace different ways of doing things, clients will simply find other avenues to get what they need done uh, completed. And so they will go around lawyers, and we're already seeing that happen today. Um, E-discovery is, is a good example. There's a more efficient, more sensible model, less wasteful model to get things done. And so the community moved to e-discovery vendors uh, to, to do document review, and that's broadened beyond e-discovery into due diligence and other areas. It's tasks that traditionally lawyers did, and now they're being done in environments that have relatively few lawyers um, assigned to them. 
that's happening on a broader scale and it will continue to happen and if it does lawyers will you know in the the Hirsch model wake up one day and find the clients have simply said you're obsolete we don't have a need for you because we can accomplish the things we need to do with very little involvement from lawyers and the little involvement we need is sprinkled around in these vendors and other places and so we've we basically moved past you and that's a real danger I think for lawyers um, and it's part of the hubris of thinking that we we are indispensable and we're irreplaceable and so what keeps me awake at night is that what am I what I'm focusing my time on uh, is trying to find ways to educate lawyers that there's still a very valuable role and, and in fact a role society should want us to play. We have a tremendous wealth of experience in dealing with governing society and the rules and processes around doing that. We don't want to cede that role to um, other groups that have less experience because there's a lot to have been learned. How things uh, work in governing a society isn't simply a matter of algorithms going back to that discussion about people. People can accept uh, that there are algorithms out there but people don't act rationally and people will not always accept a computer or something else that acts rationally when they want to act irrationally. So there's a role for lawyers. It's an important role I think in society and I'm trying to keep that at the forefront while at the same time teaching lawyers how they can make better use of their time so they can continue to play that role in society or as I say they, they will face society moving past them and I think that would not help any of us. All right. Uh, well, that is a noble mission. Uh, we're going to leave it there. Kenneth Grady uh, is the lean law evangelist for Seifarth Shaw and former chief executive of Seifarth Lean Consulting. Uh, Ken, it was a real pleasure to have you. Thanks a lot for being here. Thank you, Robert.